This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Murder Etc. listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash murder etc. Browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. In fact, check out the John Grisham books, The Guardians, and The Innocent Man. They'll sound familiar to you. Go to audibletrial.com slash murder etc. Now, here's episode 24, Peerless. Follow Charles Wakefield Jr. into a room filled with his family. People he didn't see for 35 years, while each of them lived a full life. And he looked for any sign of it through his prison cell window. When you get there, just sit down and listen. And don't be embarrassed if you have no idea what they're talking about. Just let them tell you about their lives. In West Greenwood, it was a known fact that if something went down, it was the Conrads who took care of it. The police didn't come to do anything in West Greenville until it was daylight. If somebody was laying on the street dead, police were not coming until the next morning. They was coming 12 cars deep. If anything went on in the neighborhood, the Conrads were handling the business. When you say the Conrads, I have no idea what you mean. That was the gang. Conrads and, and uh, the Dukes. To a guy like me, who didn't grow up black or grow up in West Greenville, the Conrads, the Dukes, sounded like TV shows. I would be out in the yard playing. They were actually neighborhood gangs. And my mama would say, y'all come on in. The Conrad said for everybody to get their kids off the streets. Something was gonna go down. But not the kind of gangs I knew. These gangs were different. Yes, the gangs were protecting their turf. But as Charles Wakefield Jr. and his cousin Eddie told it that night, the goal for the gangs was to protect their communities. Eddie remembered one particular night his mom pulled him into the house because the Conrads said to get the kids inside. That night was December 14th, 1969. I went in the house, started watching TV, and next thing you know, it was a little boy on television called Michael Jackson on the Ed Sullivan Show. This was one of those times we had to come in. It turned out to be one of the biggest things that I ever saw in my life. It was Michael Jackson. On, and I probably would have been outside playing had it not been for that. As Eddie made memories with the Jackson Five and Ed Sullivan, the gangs battled in a way that today would probably make a good movie for comedians Key and Peele. You know, sometimes they would settle things on the football field. They had a little apartment complex adjacent to Queen Street. Yes, they played volleyball and out there. I thought, surely, I'd heard Eddie wrong. It sounded like he said the gangs were playing volleyball. I remember those volleyball games. Volleyball. Volleyball, yeah, <laughs> volleyball games. And I mean, those guys, I mean, when they would spike it, I mean, this was, this was serious stuff. It was, it was tenacious. And I mean, people were out there and everybody was riveted to these volleyball games. I didn't know I was younger. I wasn't aware of the significance of it, but those were serious volleyball games. The Conrads, the Dukes, the Hosepipe Gang, they didn't settle their beefs with a drive-by. They settled their beefs with a ball and a net. This was them handling some kind of spewed or defeat. They would do it on the volleyball court. I mean, people in the apartments would be all lined up around and everybody and everybody would watch these and they were serious. I could have gone home that night and researched the history of volleyball. 
and learned how a man at the YMCA invented the game in 1895 as an alternative for businessmen who found the game of basketball too intense. But even then, I wouldn't have been able to picture warring neighborhood gangs serving, setting, and spiking their way to peace. No amount of research was going to give me a frame of reference for what life was like in Greenville, South Carolina, for Charles Wakefield Jr., his family, all of their kin, and their friends in the years, months, and days leading up to the Looper murders trial. For me, the concept of gang volleyball was just as alien and hard to comprehend as it would be for me to understand what life must have been like for Charles Wakefield Jr. and his family. From the time I was born until I graduated high school, I had four black friends because they were the only black kids I knew the entire time. The only way I was going to have any understanding of a life I couldn't even pretend to picture was to stop looking at today's Greenville and instead listen to people talk about a Greenville even many of the city's lifelong residents never knew existed. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder Etc. In this episode, we're going to talk about the jury charged with deciding whether Charles Wakefield Jr. was guilty of killing Rufus and Frank Looper. And we're going to talk about the city where that jury lived. For the dedicated Murder Etc. listener, that might cause some mental whiplash. It's only been in the last two episodes that Greenville police found their key witnesses in the case. So how are we already talking about a trial jury? Because that's how time sped up the moment police charged Wakefield with the Looper murders. In 1975, the investigation into the murders of Rufus and Frank Looper moved so slowly, it sometimes seemed like the case wasn't just cold, it was frozen. But in late October 1975, nine months after the Looper murders, as the chill of autumn began to settle in, the case didn't just thaw, it boiled over. Greenville police decided they had their man and they delivered their case to Prosecutor Billy Wilkins. Wilkins wasted no time. He put the case in front of the Greenville County Grand Jury and got the indictments that paved a road to death row. As Wilkins remembered 44 years later, in 2019, the police had been working on the case for a very long time. No, the investigation lasted for a year. And in the first court hearings, prosecutors told the judge they were nearly ready for trial. After working for a year on the case, the prosecution asked to begin the trial six weeks later. The goal? To send a man to the electric chair. A man named Charles Wakefield Jr. Today, Billy Wilkins still remembers Wakefield by another name. Well, you want to talk about Wacky? Wacky Wakefield. The police file is littered with the nickname painting Charles Wakefield Jr. as maybe someone who was weird or crazy or something worse. Wakefield's family says police and prosecutors had it wrong. This, again, 
is Charles Cousinetti. He was given the name Wacky because like the Wacky Professor, he was nutty. We, was, we like to have fun. You know, he liked to have fun. That's really unfortunate that we try to shy away from calling him that, but really to me, that's, that's who he is. He, he's Wacky. But there's nothing negative to me about that, but it was just because he was a kind of a fun guy. I mean, in that way, he was Wacky. Today, people who know Wakefield cringe when they hear the nickname Wacky because to those people, it was as if police stole Wakefield's personality, stole his spirit, ripped it out of his hands, and used it to beat him into who they wanted him to be. You know, he still likes to laugh and chuckle, and, you know, I still wish we could call him wacky, but because of things the way they are, you know, they've, it's like they've taken that away from him. Nevertheless, Eddie enjoyed talking about the old days. I have fond memories of growing up or spending time with my cousins. Better times before wacky was a bad word. Playing football in the streets, playing basketball on the schoolyard. They were good times, yeah. And long before Wakefield's defense team rushed to prepare for trial, that night of memories wandered way back into West Greenville when Eddie and Charles were kids. The first black police officers that were hired in Greenville, they were hired to keep the black people in line. Without any prompting at all, they started to talk about a Greenville I didn't know, one where gangs warred on a volleyball court, and the West Greenville kids were afraid of the police, no matter whether they were white or black. You knew a black police officer when they were first hired in the 60s. They weren't to protect and to serve. They were sent into the black communities to put us in check. Put us in check and keep us in check. In the early 1970s, Greenville County's white population outnumbered the black population by four to one. And no matter how many years it had been since Reconstruction, the lines between white folks and black folks' neighborhoods still looked like deep-rutted, well-traveled roads and impossibly long railroad tracks. Greenville City Councilwoman Lillian Brock Fleming served West Greenville for 40 years and knows it better than almost anyone. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was a trend to put roads, and they always divided African-American neighborhoods. If you look at 385, it destroyed Little Texas, and they know, and that community no longer exists. It's all commercial now, whereas it was a vibrant and thriving neighborhood. But even when the lines didn't have an interstate highway running through them, they still looked like a deep valley. On one side, the neighbors Charles Wakefield Jr. knew in his first 21 years. On the other side, the jury pool in the Looper murders trial. Most of Greenville's historically black neighborhoods still exist. Longtime residents know about Nickeltown, Brutontown, Green Line Spartanburg, Southern Side, Sterling, West Greenville. But today, the more Greenville's celebrated downtown expands, the more Greenville becomes a destination for people who never knew the city as it was in the 1970s and the troubled years before. So those lines and that deep valley are harder to see. And for the people who live on either side of those lines, it becomes harder to see 40 years back when the ideal of picking a jury of a man's peers was a lot more complicated than randomly picking a dozen people from the state's biggest county to sit in judgment and decide if a man should die. It was understood 
that once it get dark or whatever, you don't go down there and saying Susie fooling around if you was a black person. Every city has its map, the tangled grid of streets with invisible dividing lines between neighborhoods. Eddie and Charles talked me through their memories. They told me about the places they were safe and the places they couldn't go. We lived and we grew up in West Greenville, probably one of the more impoverished neighborhoods in Greenville. Uh, there were a lot of them. Broomtown, Freetown, West Greenville. If you're not known there and you're not known of there, they, they can be really, really harsh places, you know, for you to stumble into. Eddie and Charles remembered their personal maps of Greenville so vividly, I can describe them myself. I told City Councilwoman Lillian Brock Fleming about some of the Wakefield family tours I'd taken. Some of the stories they told me were something that I couldn't understand in this day and age. Was it something that you could explain in a way that people oh, like yeah. today don't even understand? The community was different. You did have white neighborhoods and then you had black neighborhoods and oftentimes you did not venture into the other by yourself because it might not be good. No matter how good or bad it would be, before the 1970s, when the councilwoman and Wakefield's cousins were still kids, their little place on the map was a place where life was good. West Greenwood was actually a beautiful place when I was a very little girl. People had flowers and kept their yards neat and clean. Your house was not huge, but it was clean for what you had. So that, that's the pride in it. It's yours. And sometimes with the help of the Conrads or the Dukes, the community operated in a way everyone could understand. It was like a family in terms of gathering. You talked to each other. If you didn't go to the exact same church, you all went to churches very close to each other. You went to the same schools, and, and you just lived together. It was almost like we call it the village of West Greenville. That's what a village has, is that attitude of unity. When you learn to read a map, you learn about its legend, how to find landmarks, mile markers, points of interest. But there isn't a legend on the map that shows where to find unity nor one that could tell a 40-something white guy in 2019 where black folks could and couldn't go when they were kids. I wanted to know about that main drag through West Greenville, Pendleton Street, where Rufus and Frank Looper lived. We didn't hang on Pendleton Street. We didn't go up there. We would go to the little stores because they had the nickel and dime store down there and a couple of other stores and a couple of other stores. And then on the corner, they had the wash red and then they had the little community center. Now, we can kind of sort of go down through there in the daytime. But when it got close to evening or night, black people didn't hang over there. This is a podcast. You're only listening, maybe in your car or on a walk with your dog. So it might sound like Eddie and Charles are pointing at a map on the table. But we had nothing between us, except their memories. This end of Perry Avenue near Queen Street, okay, that was sort of cool. But once you go back the other way, then that's when it got kind of sticky. When they were kids, they didn't have a map. They got directions from people who had already learned the streets. You just had an awareness of what the, what the older, more mature guys would do would sort of let you know where you shouldn't and should not go. They followed the big kids and their mothers and the men. Charles Wakefield Jr. listened to his beloved aunts, like 86-year-old Annie Jones. She was my age when Charles Wakefield Jr. went to trial. Today, she is 87 years old. I asked her to describe West Greenville for me. Kind of a rough side of town. Mostly black people lived over there. And they had a school right there. It was, uh, you know, back then it was segregated. It, it was all black school. Eddie remembers that school too. 
West Greenville Elementary School. On the other side of the track was the Brandon area. That's white over there. So if you went over there, there better be a good reason for you going over there because otherwise you didn't belong over there. You wouldn't get treated very well over there. You just stay on your side of the tracks. And that's what we did. They had their side of the tracks, we had our side of the tracks. We had our side of the tracks. Eddie said that as if it were just plainly true. It was clear that I heard him, but Eddie could see I was struggling to understand how he wasn't describing the Civil War era, but instead modern history. So Eddie put it even more plainly. People in the South, mostly, if everybody stayed in their place, they, they got along and so on. You just knew your place. Place wasn't just a matter of geography. Faced with a 29-day court-ordered deadline, Greenville was forced in the middle of a school year to totally desegregate and establish a... When Charles Wakefield's aunt talked about West Greenville, you might have heard her say that schoolhouse was a black school. Most history students know there was a time when America's schools were segregated, and many know the court decision to desegregate happened in 1954. I'm the person in the room sometimes goes, oh, wait a minute, you know, that, uh, no, no, the, that's not how it happened. That is John Bonowski, an author and historian in Greenville, who can tell you all about how, when it came to desegregation, Greenville took its time. Greenville doesn't have a dirty secret about segregation. While we try to pretend Greenville didn't have problems with black and white, you know, you'd drive around Greenville and it was, the little code sign was, if there was a Confederate flag sticker in the window, that was a whites-only establishment. And that was one of those things, like if you saw that, that was a, a, a visual cue. Segregation was illegal, but there were the little visual cues like that that said, okay, you're not allowed there. And as for Greenville County Schools? How that was achieved totally, swiftly, and with only scattered resistance is a story of which Greenville is proud. That's a 1970 mini-documentary produced by the state of South Carolina. It tells a happy story about the desegregation effort. History tells a different story about the city's slow walk to an integrated county school district. That version is hard to swallow for folks who believe Greenville's always done everything perfectly and managed integration just as well. We were the shining star. And that did happen. But behind the scenes, though, we were one of the last school districts to desegregate. Brown versus the Board of Education and Little Rock was 54. We didn't desegregate school until 1970. So that's 16 years where there's a lot of festering. And that didn't happen by accident. They, they had to be forced to desegregate. Eddie remembers that Christmas break in 1970, but not fondly. They didn't tell us that this was going to happen. I went home for Christmas vacation. We all got letters saying, you know, you've been reassigned and you're going to be bussed over here. And, you know, we got bussed over to Jetson. And, you know, the white people are there turning our bus over. They didn't want us over there. We didn't want to be over there because that's the way it was. No matter how uncomfortable it was, Eddie knew why it was happening. Before Greenville's integration, he worked in a book depository and he could feel the weight of the inequality with every book he delivered. And I delivered the books to the school at the beginning of the year and, you know, took them up at the uh, end of the school year. And I knew that the white schools got all the good, nice books and all the black schools got all the secondhand. That Christmas break in 1970, Greenville County started trying to figure out how to integrate its district. This is Superintendent Dr. M.T. Anderson speaking in 1970. Approximately 12,000 pupils 542 teachers transferred to other schools. Indirectly, every teacher and every pupil was affected. 12,000 students, 
more than 500 teachers. The population in Greenville County is approximately 80% white and 20% black. Every pupil affected. And using the ratio between whites and blacks. And a county's schools almost instantly integrated. We assign pupils and teachers to schools. This ratio, 80 to 20, was applied as uniformly as possible throughout the entire county. That little documentary made it sound like Greenville was broken one month and fixed the next. The magic of film hid a lot of the struggle and did nothing to explain what was happening in the rest of the city for decades to come. That film didn't even begin to explain how a black man sat in a Greenville County defendant's chair, accused of one of the city's most horrific crimes, and the jury of his peers, the jury of 12 people, who would eventually send him to death row, wasn't a majority black like the community where he grew up, or wasn't 80% white and 20% black like the rest of Greenville County. Nothing could explain how that jury was 100% white and made up of people who were 100% in favor of the death penalty. How did that happen? That is coming up right after this short break. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. And if you've been a hardcore listener of Murder Etc., you might have heard my name on this show a couple of times. Brad Willis is one of the many writers who has helped us break down misconceptions about the South ever since we started six years ago. And on the Bitter Southerner podcast with Georgia Public Broadcasting, we challenge those stereotypes across the board and paint a very different picture of the American South. Please join me for the Bitter Southerner podcast. You can subscribe for free at gpb.org slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. And we can take a left. Take a left. Left, left right here. Okay. I spent a lot of hours driving Charles Wakefield Jr. around Greenville in the years after he got out of prison. All right, which way do you think I should go? This way. Okay. There were days he'd evaporate into his own memories. Wow. And start talking to me. Yeah. That jury's still still there. As if I understood the map of his first 21 years in Greenville yeah. before he went to death row. So we're going to take a turn on India. He talked about places called Boston Lunch the catch-out corner, and Peerless Mark. Oh, this is where Peerless Mark... Peerless, as in it was unequaled in its quality. Mark, as in you could buy what you wanted. A hometown place where you could buy your TV, fridge, or any other notable item of conspicuous consumption. Peerless Mark was a landmark so common, it rolled off Charles' tongue every time he said it. And he didn't notice how the word peerless rolled around in my brain as I considered the jury that once convicted him. Charles was having to relearn his city in the context of a man in his 60s who'd been shackled and taken out of town to death row four decades earlier. Oh, it's all coming back to me now. Show and tell. If there was anything ever that Charles and his family had easier than I did, it was understanding how things were back before Greenville was the 2019 made-for-TV version of the city. 
The United States Constitution doesn't guarantee anyone the right to have members of their own race on their jury. And statistics, no matter how often they're right, don't have any sway over jury pools either. A jury pool should be a random draw of random county citizens. And once in the courtroom, an attorney can't try to remove a juror based on their race or gender. On its face, the justice system is supposed to be blind, fair, and unprejudiced. And that is how it was always supposed to be, at least for the people lucky enough to make it to the courtroom alive. I had an uncle to get lynched, my mama's brother. There was a day I was sitting on the floor in front of Annie Jones. They lived in McCormick, South Carolina. Charles Wakefield Jr.'s 86-year-old aunt. She sat on her couch. And, uh, and that was when my mom was pregnant with me. And she started talking about her family's story. And the night, a mob of white men came for her uncle. And they came in at the house that night and got him out. Drug him. They drug him behind a car. Yeah, they came in the house and took him out that night. According to the family's story, the lynching happened just before Annie was born. Her uncle tied to the back of a car and pulled down the road until his skin came off. They said all this skin was just drug off of him. They, they couldn't even open his casket because he was so tore up. Her grandmother, on the way to her own grave, heartbroken. She died from a broken heart by her son. They said it was so terrible that all this skin was pulled off of him. Mob justice, vigilante justice, lynching. It's hard to reconcile that those things might have happened in the past, but in a past not yet distant enough to shake them from a community's collective conscience. If you've listened to all of Murder, Etc. so far, you know Andy Etheridge grew up in South Carolina. His great-great-grandfather was a poll manager who tried to stop black people from voting in 1898 and got killed in a riot. No one selected a jury to get justice for Bo Zethridge's death. There was a mob that basically rounded up and sought justice in the name of my great-great-grandfather. That mob, some people said it numbered close to a thousand white men, killed at least eight black men in retribution. It was a massacre, ostensibly in defense of a man who served as a point of pride for the Etheridge family. This was one of those stories when I'm a little kid moving forward almost a century later that you're like, man, that is fascinating. But to me, the fascinating part is the way the story is told, how it softens a little bit with each generation. There is a pamphlet from where my great grandfather ran for sheriff and it says, gave his life in defense of his race. Those lynchings, and the one Annie Jones remembers from her family's history, were not the last in South Carolina. I worked with Obama at school. The last time a white mob lynched a black man in South Carolina was 1947. Tessie Earl. Tessie Earl, as a name. Uh-huh. Annie Jones remembers working in that black elementary school in West Greenville, alongside a woman who never stopped mourning. We worked in a school cafeteria together. His mama was so pitiful, she'd cry every day about it, you know, how they did him. Annie remembers Tessie Earl crying years later about her son, Willie, and the men who killed him. It was uh, cab drivers. They went to the Pickens County Jail and got him out. 
Greenville has a dark past that it absolutely must come to terms with. By all accounts, the 31 men who went to trial for the Willie Earl lynching sat in front of a jury of their peers. And one of the key features of Greenville's dark past is the Willie Earl trial. You're listening to John Jeter, a journalist, novelist, and playwright, whose latest project is a play about the Willie Earl trial. In 1947, a mob of white cab drivers became convinced Earl had murdered one of their own. Thomas Watson Brown, the cab driver, died the next morning. But by that time, Willie Earl had been picked up and taken to the Pickens County Jail. A whole convoy of cabs drove down to the Pickens County Jail, took him out, and slaughtered him. The trial was a spectacle. Journalists came from everywhere and watched a group of defendants big enough to field more than two football teams smile for the cameras and walk out with not guilty verdicts. 31 white men were acquitted in what is considered the last lynching in South Carolina. Despite signed confessions and one defense attorney standing up and declaring, Willie Earl is dead and I wish more like him was dead. Every one of the defendants walked, all 31 of them. Even though they confessed to the crime, even though they confessed to the fact that they snatched this 24-year-old black man out of jail, took him to a slaughterhouse in Pickens, and blew his brains out. Everybody knew it, and they were acquitted. John Jeter, a man with deep Southern roots, understands he's treading on a lot of subjects people don't like to discuss. But there's one subject some folks may not even consciously recognize. That's what really struck me. It's not so much racial justice per se, but judicial dignity. Vengeance means nothing. It doesn't accomplish anything. Who did these men think they were? Regardless of who they thought they were, what they ended up being, in the eyes of the law, was not guilty because of their jury's decision. Charles' aunt still thinks about Willie Earl's mom and the men who walked out of the Greenville County Courthouse that day. All of them men, if they had the trial, every one of them went free. There is an entire industry dedicated to jury selection. The psychology, game theory, statistics, demographics. These days, it's big business. Back in 1975, it took about half a day to pick the jury that would decide Charles Wakefield Jr.'s fate. The court wanted 13 people on the jury, 12 seated jurors, and one alternate. But those 13 couldn't just be any jurors because the Charles Wakefield Jr. trial required what's called a death-qualified jury. Before any juror could take his seat, the judge asked a series of questions. One of those questions was, are you opposed to capital punishment? If a juror said yes, the judge gave them another chance, asking if the facts of the case, maybe brutal murder, would make them at least consider imposing the death penalty. If a juror was adamant in their opposition to the death penalty, then that was that. They were disqualified, free to go. In all, the court questioned 31 potential jurors, coincidentally, the exact same number of defendants in the murder of Willie Earl. Out of the first 31 people questioned, the judge disqualified four of them for one reason alone. They said they could convict a man of murder, 
but they would never send a man to death row. Andy Etheridge, a son of South Carolina, knows his friends and kin had a hard time understanding why he cared so much about the trial of a man he never met. People would ask me, friends, and, and then, what are you doing with this? And what are you going to do with it? So I have no clue what I will ever do with this, but I felt very passionately that this was a story the town needed to hear. Given some time, Andy thinks about his great-great-grandfather and how his family talks about it. One generation's telling of it is that the Etheridge man defended his race. But today, Etheridge says the riot and ensuing deaths are characterized like a modern political fight between Republicans and Democrats and nothing else. Call it white guilt, call, call it what you want, but it starts me to really kind of self-examination to see how much racism have I actually seen. When people learned John Jeter was writing a play about the Willie Earl trial, the response wasn't much different than what Andy got. More along the lines of, oh, that's gross. Why would you take on a story like that's That's gross. Why would you want to take on a story like that? And the more Jeter thought, he couldn't help but find himself wondering just how much different was he from those jurors in 1947 or the defendants in the Willie Earl trial. The bottom line to me for this whole thing was that in 1947 and still today, I'm not sure that white people are aware of just how racist we are. That's not an excuse and it's not forgiveness. It's the fact that I needed to learn for myself what racist tendencies do I have that I'm not aware of, that I need to be conscious of. For both men, it's impossible to look at the sparkling, celebrated version of Greenville in 2019 and not think of a different time. Years ago, Jeter owned a music venue and bar, and he'd hear disaffected folks struggling to find anything interesting about the city of Greenville. People would say, this town ain't cool. What makes a town cool is embracing the history, both sides of it. And if I embrace the history of Willie Earl, then I walk downtown and I see the courthouse right there where the trial took place. Today, that courthouse is a cool bookstore with a coffee shop. You'd almost never know it's where a jury let 31 people walk away from what even Senator Strom Thurmond called a disgrace to South Carolina. But at the top of the building's face, someone once carved the words Greenville County Courthouse into the stone. Like a lot of Greenville's historic buildings, it's going to take a lot more time for the city's past to fully erode. Something remains in Greenville that separates these two communities. And it's got to be a racism that nobody's put their finger on because it's the kind of racism that isn't conscious. Nevertheless, no matter how conscious people get, John Jeter, Andy Etheridge, and I all know no one from Little Texas, Brutontown, or West Greenville needs the three of us to tell them about what divides this city. My neighborhood was on the books to be basically destroyed by what is now called the Pete Hollis Highway. That again is city councilwoman Lillian Brock Fleming. It was a major plan for a superhighway to come through and they were going to tear down maybe 1,120-some-odd houses, which would have been my house and a whole lot of other people's houses. That's how intense it would have been. Fleming represents the west side of Greenville. Voters there elected her in 1981 and have elected her to every term since. We knew we probably couldn't stop the whole road, but we could make some decisions about where it would go. Her public service began 
with trying to stop a highway from cutting her own community into pieces. It was another way to show it that we can divide this community and we can tear their heart out and we can make them all less vibrant. She and her neighbors knew what happened when railroads or city leaders or developers started buying up properties to make way for highways, hotels, or whatever the newer version of the city wanted. It takes away your heart. It takes away uh, your opportunities to live and grow and see people that you know. And they moved to some other sides of town, but it was never the same. Particularly if you've been in a place for 40 or 50 years and then they moved you because you rent your apartment, which a lot of people did because they didn't have a lot of money because people did not make a lot of money. Um, and those times, you know, you were excited. People made $20 a week. It was, that was, you know, oh my God, you know, it was a different time. So Fleming, her neighbors, and the people who sympathize with them, fought, and they won. The Pete Hollis Highway didn't stop. But after the fight, that road swerved and swerved to miss as many homes as possible. We complained so much in writing and in person at every event that they went to, blacks and whites working together, because none of us wanted that, that to happen. And so Fleming began four decades of public service, and today still sits on the council, in the same chambers with longtime Mayor Knox White, one of the architects of the city's heralded redevelopment, who can't help but listen when people say, you aren't finished yet. So there's quite a history here in the black community in particular of feeling very excluded and, and also this whole area being kind of their backyard, being kind of a throwaway zone in the words of some of the neighborhood leadership. Greenville put the jail down by the river, put the public works department, put a police firing range of all things, two landfills, not one, two, two landfills. So this was like the junkyard of Greenville and it was on the edge of their neighborhood. Over the years, the mayor has been forced to confront some things he didn't expect. I used to wonder, while the city had two small parks down by the river in what is otherwise a warehouse district down by the river, undesirable place to be in general. And the reason we had two small parks is one was the black park and one was the white park. It goes back to Jim Crow. I came in as mayor. I didn't know that, didn't know the history. Even the mayor admits there was history, history he considered important that he didn't know. And he admitted he knew almost nothing about Charles Wakefield Jr. You can't really blame him. Back then, Knox White was off at Wake Forest. He was 21 years old. 21 years old. The exact same age as Charles Wakefield Jr. when he was charged with the Looper murders. Charles Wakefield Jr. and Mayor Knox White were born in the same city, six weeks apart. Neither man got to see what happened to West Greenville after police rolled in looking for justice for Frank Looper. But Lillian Brock Fleming was there well after the fact. People were afraid to come outside. Normally when something happens like that near or in your community, then the people are the ones that suffer from the death of the person. Then it's as if because they were there, they're all involved. They know something. And so that creates a problem. Fleming says no matter whether it happened in 1975 or happened years later, the effect on a community of people who feel like targets doesn't change. They persevered because they had to continue to live. But then you taught your children differently, where to go, what not to say. What's more, people start looking for a way out of what was once a vibrant place they wanted to be in. A crime like the Looper killings and police looking for a black man in West Greenville. Well, that might cut just as deep into the community as a superhighway would 
And so criminals moved in. There was a different group of people there. Some of them had roots in the community, but they oftentimes did not live in the community. It was their workplace. It was a place where they sold drugs, they sold liquor illegally, and there was gambling going on. So it was not a really good place for kids. Yeah, so it was a bad time during those times. Charles' cousin Eddie was one of the people who got out, went to the Navy, went to school, and worked a long career as an electrician. He still thinks a lot about West Greenville, fondly and otherwise. It was kind of par for the course because in a way, where we grew up, it's kind of like black men get blamed for stuff all the time. They'll find somebody to blame it on. And so kind of in a way, it was kind of what this time, they happened to be Charles. In a perfect world where the justice system works the way we hope it would, a jury would serve as the firewall between a mistake and death row. Charles Wakefield Jr. was counting on his jury to be his firewall. He says one of his public defenders, Larry Cook, told him there was a deal on the table. They asked me to plead guilty. I told Cook that I wasn't going to plead guilty to nothing, that if I didn't do it, I wasn't going to plead guilty to it. He told me that if I didn't plead guilty, that they were going to give me the death penalty. Then that Friday, that's when they sentenced me to death. Maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise. Under the law, every one of the 13 people picked for the jury had to approve of the death penalty, or at least be willing to consider it. The judge disqualified four jurors for refusing to accept the death penalty as an option. Of the original 31 potential jurors, that left 27 the judge didn't DQ. The people the judge said were qualified to sit in judgment of Charles Wakefield Jr. Among them? A man who said he'd formed an opinion about the case prior to being called as a juror. Another man who was a longtime friend of the Looper family. And several people who admitted they would give more weight to testimony from police than from civilians. Including one man who, when asked if he believed police are more likely to tell the truth, he said he did. Wakefield's defense team objected. The judge said he thought the juror misinterpreted his question, so the judge asked again. And again, the man said yes, he believed police more than others. So, the judge asked again. This time, the man didn't answer at all. So, the judge rephrased it. He said, do you think that all witnesses taking the oath would tell the truth? And this time, the man said, well, I think they should. And the judge said, the jurors qualified. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins once spoke of the two Greenvilles, the moneyed class, white folks from Botany Woods or Augusta Road, and the people from places like West Greenville, two Greenvilles that even today don't really know each other's history. For John Jeter, it's the biggest thing standing in the way of resolving that old joke and how this town ain't cool. It's Greenville's ability to ignore the parts of itself it would rather hide. If we don't embrace the fact that that history is in the heart of the city, how are we going to be cool? Because in order to be an integrated human being, a complete human being, you have to embrace all parts of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's true of a community, too. And without at least recognizing it, thinking about it, considering it, remembering it, how, how have we really grown? In 1975, and in many ways still today, there are parts of Greenville that live vastly different realities, a fact the people of West Greenville 
were forced to accept a long time ago. That was way of life. And for some people, it may have seemed a little unusual, but when you're raised up like that, that's the way we was raised. Wakefield, his family, and many of the people of West Greenville came to understand the only reliance they had was self-reliance. My mother taught me from the grip that you don't expect to get how you feel about yourself externally. That has to come from inside you. Don't rely on me to make you feel good about you. That has to come from you. It's not going to come from anywhere else. Wakefield's defense team objected to the judge's disqualifications and objected to him qualifying the juror who had a steadfast belief in police. But the objections did no good. So rather than use the jury strikes the law allowed them strategically, the defense had to use them to play defense against some of the opinions of the potential jurors. Not unlike Greenville itself, the county courthouse was subdivided in a way you didn't have to squint to see. The people who loved Rufus and Frank Luber wanted justice. The people who loved Charles Wakefield Jr. wanted the same. All of those people went looking for justice at the Greenville County Courthouse. Spend any time there, and you'll see Frank Epps Jr. I liked coming to the courthouse. I started coming when I was two or three. On Sundays, we'd have to go to the courthouse in Greenville for my father to sign orders after church. You can't miss him. The one-time college basketball player is not just an imposing figure. He is the son of a Greenville legend. The second Saturday of every month, my father held what, what's now family court. His father was one of upstate South Carolina's best-known circuit judges. And Frank Jr. idolized his daddy. I spent probably more time than a kid should spend in the courthouse. For Frank Epps Jr. I just liked listening to the stories that people told. The courthouse drama was on par with the Disney movies down the street during his school summer breaks. I'd watch play court in the mornings and I would go with my father to lunch. I thought lawyers were cool because it appeared to me they always ate steak. <laughs> then a lot of times in the afternoon, he'd give me $2 or something and I'd go up to the Fox Theater and go to a movie in the summer, go to the movies and then come back to the courthouse about four o'clock and watch the end of court in the day. From the time he was out of diapers, Frank Jr. was a fixture at the Greenville County Courthouse while his father was on the bench. There was a safe cracker that was a trustee in the courthouse. There was a cell downstairs with a bed in it. I'm not sure if the guy that was the safe cracker lived at the courthouse or not, but I really liked him. Young Frank had the run of the courthouse's hallowed halls and basement cells where the safe cracker lived. I would go to the courthouse, hang out with him, and go take naps in the jail cell. When my mother found out about that, my father assured her that that would stop, and I wouldn't do that anymore, but he continued to do it, and it's the only time my father ever told me not to tell my mother about something. <laughs> Frank Jr. tells that story today with a quiet pride, the same pride he felt as a child. I can tell you this, you, there's nothing that makes you feel like a big shot, like being the judge's son in the courthouse. I really enjoyed it, and the people couldn't have been nicer to me. They all treated me like they were my aunts and uncles. Frank Epps Jr.'s education started early, under the tutelage of his courthouse family and the trial lawyers who worked in front of his father. So I developed an affection for it and an interest in it that never abated, and I never really could imagine myself doing anything else but working in the courthouse in Greenville, doing trial work in criminal law. Frank Epps Jr. would eventually go off to law school 
and his father would send him letters he'd received from Charles Wakefield Jr., the man convicted of killing Rufus and Frank Looper. Frank Jr. read those letters, knowing that his own father, a man he would idolize for the rest of his life, presided over Wakefield's trial and eventually sent Wakefield to death row. In 2019, Frank Epps Jr. sat in his office, where he can always look up at a photo of his father on the wall. And Frank Jr. thought back to that courthouse, his childhood second home. There were two bathrooms on the right-hand side, and quite frankly, until I was old enough to notice, they both said white men and white women on them. He can't recall the exact year the courthouse decided to change the signs on the bathroom door. He figures it was the late 60s or early 70s. But he remembers what the doors looked like afterward. When they took that sign down, they took the stencils off, but because of how old the doors were for a period of time, the removed stencils made it still show white men and white women on the bathroom until they replaced the door. In the painting business, you'll hear that phenomenon called paint fade. When you cover up something for so long and then strip it off, you can still see the writing on the wall. They call those ghost letters. The door stayed a good long while after that because it was long enough to make an impression on me. Everything on the outside of the ghost letters had changed with time. But right in the middle, on the inside, it spelled out clearly. Greenville, South Carolina's reality in black and white. You'll hear people, even Cousin Eddie, talk about how times have changed since the 1970s. The Susan Smith was the first time that a white woman tried to lay some kind of crime on a black person, and it didn't work. In 1994, just down the road from Greenville in Union, South Carolina, Susan Smith drowned her two children in John D. Long Lake. She told police she'd been carjacked by a black man. Smith spent more than a week making nationwide appeals for her boy's safe return. The sheriff didn't believe her. He told Susan Smith her lies were causing great pain in the black community. Smith cracked and confessed. To me, that pointed to times were changing. Unfortunately, they didn't change for Charles. So. If times have changed, it's possible that they might have changed like those bathroom doors at the courthouse when Frank Epps Jr. was young. On the day of jury selection in Wakefield's trial, Judge Epps disqualified the four jurors because they didn't believe in the death penalty. He excused one woman because she had two young children she had to take care of. Wakefield's defense team used its strikes to get rid of 11 potential jurors. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins used his strikes to excuse only two jurors. He excused a woman who said she didn't believe in the death penalty, but would consider it. The other potential juror Wilkins excused was the only qualified juror who was black. That same afternoon, 22-year-old Charles Wakefield Jr. sat in front of what the law would call a jury of his peers. Seven women, six men, 
Their average age, nearly 40 years old. The oldest, 72. Every one of them was white. A jury of Wakefield's peers. What happened in the courtroom that day, and what the jury decided, has faded in the memories of most people in Greenville. After all, Charles Wakefield Jr. was supposed to be dead by now. Like a community cut into pieces, a once beautiful neighborhood invaded by criminals, or a double murder trial aimed at sending a man to the electric chair, people like Charles and Eddie learned a long time ago, sometimes your fate is going to be in the hands and hearts of people who don't know you, who've never known you, and likely never will. Well, that's just it. You didn't have a choice. That was just the way it was. And so today, less than two weeks before Christmas 2019, that jury's decision still stands. This year, as this podcast began to spread through the city, and news broke that Greenville police had found and then somehow mysteriously lost new evidence in the Looper murder case, Charles Wakefield Jr. decided he wouldn't come to Greenville for Thanksgiving. When you're forced into a position... And he's not coming for Christmas. That's the way that things are. Most of the jurors in his trial are long gone. But their decision still haunts Charles Wakefield Jr. and Greenville every day. Like a tattoo of ghost letters left behind. Scrawled on Charles Wakefield Jr.'s forehead every time he crosses the city limit line. Ghost letters that spell out the word killer. Thanks for listening to this 24th episode. For more on the jury and the Looper murders, visit our website, murderetcpodcast.com. We're about six weeks from the end of this season of Murder, Etc. We don't know what's next for the show or us. But we do know if we finish in the red financially, it's going to be a lot harder to keep up with the updates or move on to other stories we have planned. Fortunately, we've had some very generous donations in recent weeks. So I want to send a particular thanks to my friends and now the biggest single supporters of the show, Dave and Makiko. You might be halfway around the world, but you made a huge difference here in Greenville, South Carolina. Thank you. For anyone else that would like to help out, you can donate with your credit card via PayPal at paypal.me slash murder ETC. That's paypal.me slash murder ETC or via Venmo to the account MurderETC. We have that information on the front page of the website. Again, that's MurderETCPodcast.com. Our next full episode will be out after the holidays. But if anything breaks between now and then, we'll put out a special report immediately. Here's what's coming up. Given three weeks to prepare for trial, a dedicated public defender tries to save Charles Wakefield Jr. from the electric chair. Until the day he died, Buddy was convinced of his innocence and felt like something untoward had happened. 
along the way, it angered him. It always angered him. He never let go of the anger that he felt for the way this went down. The Looper Murders Trial, next time on Murder, Etc.